All right, everyone. Welcome to the Toasty Cuddle Podcast, where we help you connect with the past through food. My name is James. I'm your host. And today is episode 49. Before I dive into today's show, I wanted to take a minute to thank all of our new listeners. If you like what you hear, make sure you leave a five-star review wherever you get your podcast and tell a friend. The show is growing And we're off to a great start for listeners in July. This is set to be the single greatest month to date in total listeners for the show. And I simply couldn't do this without all of you. So thank you all so much for your reviews and your support. It really does mean a lot, and I'm super appreciative. You know, Toasty Kettle started around a simple idea helping people connect with the past through vintage recipes. A couple of years ago, I was sitting in a Taco Bell during my lunch break at work, and I was talking on the phone with my sister about blogs and how I wanted to start one, but lacked a good idea. She mentioned diving into vintage cookbooks and bringing old recipes to life. I fell in love with the idea, and I've had a ton of fun reading these cookbooks and getting a snapshot on life and nutrition throughout history. I felt closer to my grandparents and ancestors as I've learned more about what they might have eaten back in their day. When I started doing this podcast, I had a moment in the kitchen on each episode where I would highlight a vintage or family recipe. And now Life got busy with a new job, and sadly, I got away from that. In the next few episodes, I will be bringing back the kitchen segment to the podcast, and I'm happy to announce more vintage recipes are on the way, so buckle up. I'm also going to be sharing some of the food memories that I've been receiving in a new food memory segment. Again, I want to hear how you connect with your past through food. If you have a food memory of a restaurant experience or a recipe mom cooked or anything else, please send them my way. You can send them to toastykettle at gmail.com, and that will be in the show notes. Finally, I'm going to move my weekly podcast from Wednesday of each week to Thursday of each week. That's going to ensure that I have enough time in the week to bring you all of this great content and more. So that's enough housekeeping for today. Now for today's show. So I'm super excited about the show today. Uh, It's a topic that I am very passionate about. The inspiration for today's show comes from driving around town the other day. I noticed a new store had opened boasting over 100 varieties of root beer. The store was surprisingly called the Root Beer Store. Now, I had to stop in and see what was going on. This store was incredible. They had fun brands and varieties I'd never heard of. They had some sodas that have been around for 100 plus years. I discovered a new personal favorite, Mary and Berry Cream Soda. If you listen to my episode on Idle Isle Cafe, you know the Idleberry pie contains Mary and Berries. And this soda tasted like that pie in soda form. 
It was divine. It was delicious. It was amazing. Now, as I drove away from the shop, I had a lot of questions bouncing around in my head regarding root beer. I've covered Dr. Pepper and Coca-Cola on previous episodes, and today we're going to cover root beer in general and then cover the history of some of the brands that are still around today that you've likely heard of. Now, root beer can be one of those controversial drinks. We all have a favorite root beer, and we seem to guard that choice like it's a life or death situation. Uh, Root beer is a drink that is incredibly popular in North America. When discussing how root beer is made, you really have to start at the root. Literally. (laughs) Bad pun in a number of ways. I know, I know. Uh, Root beer is a beverage that historically was made from root bark of the sassafras tree. Now here's where things get interesting. There are many traditional root beverage that became popular. Root beer, sarsaparilla, and birch beer, to name a few. Throughout the world, sarsaparilla is made into various beverages, and it seems to be really big throughout Asia. And this, of course, comes from the, of course, like you know the science behind sarsaparilla, Uh, This comes from the Smilax ornata, or the sarsaparilla plant. Classic U.S. sarsaparilla does not come from the Smilax ornata. Instead, it's made from a blend of birch oil and sassafras. Coincidentally, that's almost the same blend that was used in root beer historically. At the time, sassafras was a popular home remedy, when, take, when taken in large doses, it causes sweating, which people thought was healthy at the time. However, sassafras also causes liver damage and has been linked to cancer. As a result, the FDA banned sassafras-containing products in 1960. Today's sassafras extract has been replaced with methyl salicylate, probably butchered that, methyl salicylate, which is the ester found in wintergreen and black birch. So don't worry, that cold glass of root beer you drank with your lunch likely won't kill you. You live to fight another day. Root beer has actually been around for a long, long time. Long before European settlers began arriving in America, Native Americans made a type of sassafras root beverage for culinary and medicinal purposes. Root beer has also been sold as early as the 1840s in confectionery shops. Written recipes for the drink have been spotted as early as the 1860s. In 1875, a pharmacist named Charles Elmer Hires developed his own recipe and changed the root beer landscape forever. (laughs) While on his honeymoon, Charles Hires first tasted root beer. He fell in love with the beverage and decided to make his own formula. Like other soft drinks I've covered, root beer got its start as a patent medicine. When Hires went to market with his concoction, he was promising it would purify your blood and give you rosy cheeks. (laughs) That's what everyone wants, right? 
at Philadelphia's Centennial Exposition in 1876, Hires found new customers by giving away free glasses of root beer. He sold his formula as a 25-cent packet of powder that would make five gallons of root beer. He marketed it as a solid concentrate made of 16 wild roots and berries. In 1884, Hires developed a liquid extract and a syrup for use in soda fountains. Soon after that, they began selling root beer in kegs. In 1890, the Charles E. Hires Company incorporated and began selling root beer in small bottles. By 1891, they claimed to have sold over 1 million bottles. Kind of incredible. Within a year or two of launching, they already had that major success. If you can remember back to when Dr. Pepper got their start, it was it took a while to start hitting that million-dollar mark with Dr. Pepper and even with Coca-Cola. So that was rapid success. Hire's choice of name for the beverage drew controversy. He was a teetotaler, and he wanted to call the drink Root Tea. However, he was a savvy marketer and he knew he needed his beverage to sell well. He was in the business to make money, after all. So he particularly wanted to target Pennsylvania coal miners. And he settled on calling the drink root beer instead of root tea. And this drew the wrath of the temperance movement. The Women's Christian Temperance Union successfully got Hires Root Beer banned for three years on suspicion that it contained alcohol. Hires had his drink tested in a laboratory and concluded that his root beer contained less alcohol than a loaf of bread. With the findings in hand, Hires ratcheted up his marketing. He called it the temperance drink and the greatest health-giving beverage in the world. Hires believed strongly in advertising. He said doing business without advertising is is like winking at a girl in the dark. You know what you're doing, but nobody else does. I love that quote. The success of Hire's Root Beer inspired many other brands to get in the game and make their own recipes. There are many, many other Root Beer brands I could go into, and I might have to cover some of those at a later date. If there's one that you love that I didn't cover today, please let me know. I'd love to dive into the history. Today, I'm going to focus on some of the major ones still in production today. So first, we'll start with Dad's Root Beer. This is a classic one that I've seen in stores from time to time, but I've never tried it. At least I don't remember trying it. Dad started in the 1930s in Chicago, Illinois by Barney Burns and Eli Clapman in the basement of Clapman's home. Their first trademark registration was in 1938, and it was granted on February 14, 1939. (laughs) Happy Valentine's Day, guys. The brand was incredibly popular, and by the late 1940s, it was one of the most popular brands of root beer consumed in the country. They were also the first soda company of all sodas, not just root beer, to embrace the six-pack format that we see today. Dad's Root Beer was marketed as a family of sizes, literally. 
a family of sizes. The junior bottle size was 7, 10, or 12 ounces. The mama size was a quart bottle, and the papa was a half gallon. A common promotion in the 40s was a one-cent sale. If you purchased the papa size at full price, then you could get the mama size for one cent. (laughs) Sign me up. (laughs) Next, I'm going to cover mug. Mug root beer is my least favorite. It tastes too much like licorice for me. I just, I don't know. I don't like it. Uh, Prove me wrong, world. If you love mug, I want to know why. Mug root beer was first produced in the late uh, in the 1940s by the Belfast Beverage Company in San Francisco, and when it was produced originally, it was called Belfast Root Beer. They later changed the name to Mug Old Fashioned Root Beer. An advertisement for Belfast Old Fashioned Mug Root Beer appeared as early as 1952. In the 1960s, sugar-free mug, as well as mug, cream soda, and diet mug, cream soda launched. Pepsi purchased mug in 1986 to replace their own brand of root beer. It was called On Tap Draft Style Root Beer. And you could see mug sounded a lot better and just had a better sound to it. So now we'll move to Barks. Barks is an interesting root beer. It's different taste from others like NW Dads or even Mug, and it used to be my favorite because of that. However, the smooth vanilla flavor of NW eventually won me over. And Barks is different from other brands in that they opted for a true sarsaparilla flavor instead of the sassafras flavor found in other root beers. They also contain less sugar and higher carbonation than other root beers at the time. Barks was founded in 1890 by Edward Charles Edmund Bark and his older brother Gaston. They started their company in the French Quarter of New Orleans, and in their early days, their most popular recipe was a soda called Orangine. And this was, you guessed it, an orange-flavored soda. Edward Bark Edward Bark moved to Biloxi, Mississippi in 1898. He started Biloxi Artesian Bottling Works. This is the year that is often given for the official start of Bark's root beer. While in Mississippi, Edward Bark employed Jesse Robinson. Robinson was mentored by Bark and learned the ins and outs of bottling drinks. He later moved to New Orleans to seek his own fortune. In 1934, he signed a franchise agreement with Edward Bark to bottle Bark's root beer. This agreement was unique from other similar agreements done at the time with other companies in that Robinson was allowed to bottle his own concentrate, meaning he could come up with variations on Bark's recipe and bottle it as Bark's root beer and... That's how he ran his show. For several years, Barks didn't market their product as root beer, and this was in an effort to avoid a legal confrontation with hires who was trying to trademark the term root beer. It was also formulaically different from other root beers at the time. As I mentioned, Barks was sarsaparilla-based, not sassafras-based. There is a difference there. In later years, Barks was hindered in their ability to grow and advertise their brand because of the Louisiana-based Barks franchises owned by the Robinson family. An extended legal battle ensued, and the 
uh, ensued over who had the rights to the Barks trademark. A lot of money tied up in that trademark. The courts eventually ruled in the Robinsons' favor. And the last family held Barks, uh, it was held by the Robinsons' family in Louisiana, was sold to Coca-Cola in the year 2000. So now Coca-Cola owns the exclusive rights to Barks Root Beer. Now we're going to move to A&W. A&W is what I think of when I think of root beer. It's the brand that I have fallen in love with. It was also my first car. When I was around five years old, my great-grandma won a small electric A&W root beer car, you know, one of those little electric cars that kids drive around. My grandparents found a way to get it to Idaho from Kansas, and I was off to the races. So A&W got their start on June 20th, 1919 in Lodi, California. Roy W. Allen opened a root beer stand with a recipe that he purchased from a pharmacist in Arizona. In 1920, he partnered with Frank Wright, and they created the A&W brand. There are a few theories out there on what the A&Ws stand for. Some say it is for Alice and Willard Marriott uh, of the Marriott Hotels. This may be because Marriott's first business was an A&W franchise. However, the reality is it stands for Roy Allen and Frank Wright. So Allen and Wright, A and W. In 1924, Allen bought Wright's share of the business and trademarked the name and began selling restaurant franchises. And by restaurant, I mean root beer stand franchises. A&W is one of the first franchise restaurant chains in the country. When a franchisee bought in, they gained access to the name, the logo, and root beer syrup from Allen. By 1933, there were more than 170 locations nationwide. There was no common menu, no common architecture, and no common shared procedures by the franchisees. Now, some of them decided to expand beyond just root beer and started selling food with the root beer. If you remember from last week, that's what really stood out and made White Castle so unique at the time. They had many locations through the 20s and 30s, and they had standardized procedures, menus, and architecture, keeping all locations in line. That was not the case at the A&W. Some were exclusively selling root beer, some were selling food, some were selling all kinds of food. It was a mixed grab bag. Like many of the businesses I've covered, A&W struggled through World War II with labor shortages and sugar rations. However, when soldiers came home, they had access to GI loans meant to drive private businesses and with the popularity of the automobile and the culture of the 50s, A&W restaurants took off. By 1950, there were 450 root beer stands nationwide. In that same year, Allen sold the business to Gene Hertz and retired. Gene started the A&W Root Beer Company, and he grew the business rapidly. By 1960, there were 2,000 locations nationwide. The business changed hands a couple more times and finally landed with United Fruit Company in 1963. And they created a wholly owned subsidiary A&W distributing company. And the intent there was to start bottling the beverage for grocery store shelves. 
Remember, to this point, A&W was purchased at root beer stands and restaurants. So when they started bottling the root beer, they did a test run in Arizona and California. It sold so well, they quickly rolled out their root beer nationwide. And they're now owned by Keurig Dr. Pepper. So now a couple quick facts about root beer. August 6th is National Root Beer Float Day. So we're getting close to August 6th. I hope we all enjoy a root beer float. Both Benjamin Franklin and George Washington were fans of small beer, which was a precursor to root beer. As I mentioned, Hires made its public debut at the Philadelphia Centennial Exhibition in 1876. Now, there are some other influential products that were also at the ex- exhibition. Alexander Graham Bell's Telephone, Heinz Ketchup, and the Remington Typewriter all debuted at that exhibition. Root beer accounts for 3% of the U.S. soft drink market. And that kind of surprised me a little bit. With all the different brands out there, I would have thought that it would have been slightly more. But then you think of all the other sodas that are out there, and 3% actually sounds pretty good. In 1927, John and Alice Marriott purchased an A&W franchise in Washington, D.C. The Marriott's named their root beer restaurant The Hot Shop. Their restaurant expanded and eventually led to the creation of Marriott Hotels. And the sonic chain of drive-in restaurants began as a hamburger and root beer stand in Shawnee, Oklahoma in 1953. So this deep dive into root beer history made me want to start experimenting with different flavor combinations and making my own soda. A lot of these guys developed something amazing just playing around with flavors in the basement. A couple weeks ago, my son was playing with his cousins, and when the adults stopped supervising, they got busy. They whipped up a fruit punch, which was a variety of different fruits that they blended down into a a type of smoothie. They're very proud of their new drink and claimed it was the best fruit punch they'd ever had. I guess we don't know what the next great beverage is going to be, and we don't know who's going to actually be the one to invent it. Maybe it will be you. Well, that's all I have for today. If you like what you heard, make sure you leave a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Toasty Kettle. I'd love to hear what your favorite root beer brand is. Make sure you leave a comment below. That's going to allow me to see what is popular out there in the world of root beer. I'd love to see what you all like to drink. Until next week.